Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everybody and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today I'm finding out about one of the most important aspects in all of maritime history, a theme that runs through it like ships through oceans. It is not, however, something physical, like wood, iron, steel or canvas, nor is it a hard-earned skill, like hauling on a halyard or reefing a mainsail or anchoring an aircraft carrier. No, it's something more abstract, and yet something that is fundamental to how we sail, to how we have managed to populate the world. It is the question of time. More broadly, the question of time is nothing less than the question of civilization, the question of us. Time itself has been harnessed, it's been politicised, weaponised. Clocks have been used to wield power, to make money, to govern and control, to exchange knowledge and even beliefs. To find out more, I spoke with David Rooney, an expert on the history of timekeeping and civilization, and the author of About Time, A History of Civilization in Twelve Clocks. David has worked as a curator at the London Science Museum, where he was curator of transport, and subsequently he was keeper of technologies and engineering. I'm sure you will agree that is a truly fabulous job title. But he has also worked at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, where he had the even more brilliant job title of Curator of Timekeeping, a job that no doubt keeps your feet firmly on the ground and balanced in today's world. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to David, even if I had to cope with the grit in the oyster that I was jealous of his numerous jobs. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is the incredibly accomplished David. David, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure, Sam. Um, right, clocks. Let's start. I was up in London recently um, and uh, uh, went to the House of Lords, which was very nice, and I admired Big Ben looming over the Houses of Parliament, all freshly done up and shiny. It made me wonder what on earth is going on there. Why is there a massive clock next to um, next to our government, next to the River Thames? Big Ben is looking absolutely fantastic right now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, amazing. When the scaffolding started coming down recently and then when Big Ben, the bell started to strike and it's like, 
I mean, is it like the heartbeat of London, the heartbeat of the nation, but it's also the face of the nation. I get really interested in clock towers, big looming clock towers, particularly in like city centres and national centres like London. And Big Ben has become, been there since the middle of the 19th century, a great Victorian edifice. It's become, it's become the British people itself. It stands in for Britishness. Right, uh, people care a great deal in Britain about Big Ben. So when it was stopped for that restoration project, there's a lot of consternation among a lot of people in Britain, a lot of the politicians in the Houses of Parliament, that Big Ben had been stopped because it was like the voice of the people had been silenced. Um, I mean, it's, and it came at the same time that Brexit was going through. So there was a lot of there's a lot of kind of national narrative about the the voice of British people. Um, you know, whether it was getting a getting a louder voice with Brexit, and so with the clock stopped at that time, it caused a lot of. Uh, well, it caused a lot of, of interest anyway. So I'm really interested in, in clock towers standing in for people in power. And this isn't just a recent uh, phenomenon. I mean, we look at Big Ben or wherever you are around the world, yet there's likely to be clock towers. Um, many of them built by the British uh, at the time of its um, maritime empire. But actually, if you look back, you can look back 2,000 years place let's go back to ancient rome the roman republic all right there weren't mechanical clocks on towers but the first sundial that was installed in ancient rome was installed on a tall column right at the heart of the roman forum and it was installed there by a great military leader who had who had looted that sundial from the city of Catania on the island of sicily in a great military victory and brought it back to rome put it up on a high column that bore his name. And it wasn't just there as a symbol. It was a symbol of great military power, of political power, but it also became that um, that kind of daily um, controlling device that we might recognise. The people of Rome hated it. The people of yeah. Rome talked about it and said, may the gods damn the man who first set up that sundial here to cut and hack my day so wretchedly into small pieces, arguing that they couldn't even have their lunch when they were hungry. They had to wait till the sundial allowed them to. <laughs> That's my kind of argument. It makes me think of... Um, oh, uh, we're, we're going off topic here, but um, the amazing ma um, mechanical clock in Bern, is it? The Zeitglocke. Um, does that ring a bell? Do you know what uh, I'm talking uh, about? It certainly rings a bell, and, and, and it does many other things as well. The, I mean, those <laughs> are incredible. Those great astronomical and astrological yeah, yeah. clocks built in kind of the, um, the Middle Ages and then in the centuries that followed, places like Prague, places like Strasbourg Cathedral, uh, had these massive... Um, complex automaton clocks which showed the movement of the heavens and the uh, and automaton figures of Christ and the disciples uh, um, astrology really really significant at a time in the west when everyone believed in God and everyone believed that the the heavenly bodies controlled what happened here on earth and therefore could have a predictive quality well you can imagine as a as a resident of those cities, seeing these gigantic mechanical marvels, yeah. um, which are which are placing you in the universe 
um, and predicting your future, how amazing must that have been? Yeah, and dividing your day up as well. It's all of the controlling, you know, who's in charge of the city, who's in charge of the social life. And um, anyway, going back to the maritime aspect of it, I, I, it's really struck me for the first time, and I was, you know, at the foot of Big Ben, how close it is to the Thames. And actually, if you think of um, between... Uh, uh, Parliament and then all the way down to Greenwich where you've got other time uh, keeping devices that the river is so important, the maritime world is so important. It's not uh, you know, an accident that um, the government runs itself next to the River Thames rather than in, in the heart of England in Oxford or somewhere. That's exactly right and, and the relationship between um, power and water and the relationship between time and water, the rivers and the coasts of this coastal nation, is it, they're intertwined, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about. It's absolutely, it's absolutely no accident that it's right on the river, and it was that that clock speaks to the river, remembering, of course, that that river was absolutely teeming with life in the 19th century. That river was not just the heart of London; it was the heart of the British Empire, that by then the biggest empire in the world, and. And into and out from that river flowed the goods of a great, huge maritime empire, the people, you know, the, 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 the relation, the, the connection between the centre of London and the rest of the world via that river and then the sea uh, was, was profound. And that a clock, a great clock, and what time meant in a maritime community, a maritime nation was really significant. I have a theory about this. I believe that bridges are the curse of uh, maritime history, or at least people trying to get maritime history across to the masses. Because if there weren't any bridges in London, or there was just like one small one, then it would just be full of ships, and then it would all make sense. Uh, but now there are none. So you have to actually stop and explain, as you just did so well, how, you know, the Thames and other rivers as well. I was in Brisbane recently, and that river used to be full of trade. And then they, they built, ironically, the James Cook Bridge across the middle of it, which stopped any ships going up it. So, uh, you know, it's kind of an isolated, it's a strange place now there. And um, London's a bit like that. It's a maritime nation and, and a dead river. And you can definitely, you can plot that history of effectively a nation turning its back on, on its coast, on its river and maritime trade by the geography of the bridges in London. Plenty of them at the west of London, built from quite early on, very few bridges in the east. And the ones that are there are much later having be, been built because all of those ships arrived from the east. And so it was harder to build bridges when there was still river trade. It was fine up to the west where the ships didn't really want to go. Um, but if you look in southeast London, where I am, very few bridges and the ones that are there, like Tower Bridge, um, opening a, a bascule bridge to allow the ships further up into the Pool of London. Yeah. I think we should write a book about the history of London's bridges. That's a very good idea. Anyway, let's go back to clocks. We're supposed to be talking about time. Um, wh when did you first become interested in clocks? How did that all start? Um, it, it, it's, it's absolutely in my blood. Uh, I... Uh, when my when I was uh, eight years old, my parents decided to have a complete career change. They'd been um, teachers, uh, and my father decided to become a clockmaker, a, a, a restorer of clocks. He retrained, went away for a year to horological college on the south coast of England. When he came back, qualified clockmaker, and um, set up a business in the family home in northeast England. And for the next 10 years, I was a small part of that business, going with them to you know, pick up clocks, help set them up. 
Um, and, and it kind of it seeped into my consciousness, not just not just the, the mechanics of how clocks worked. I would listen to my father as he was talking about the technical problems that he was solving. But what they also did, both of them, was to research the history of every clock that they did. They did. They worked on some amazing clocks, you know, the finest uh, um, that you could imagine um, in the great country houses of the north of England and Scotland. But they also worked on the absolute most modest, the cheapest 1930s clocks, which today you can get on eBay for, for a fiver. You know, they're worth nothing. But to the people who owned them, they meant everything because they, they, were, they had um, an emotional connection. My parents would research the history of every single one of them to be able to tell their client a little more about the clock they owned. And that stuck with me, the idea that every clock has a story to tell they, do, they don't all have to be big stories but all those small stories add up to something quite significant so by the time I ended up as a historian of technology working in museums working with horological collections among others it was that idea about what are the stories that are that are bound up inside of these these clocks watches whatever and what are the, what do they what do they mean when you start to add them up and I, I started working on a book about, started about a history of clocks, but it ended up a history of civilization through clocks because yeah. all those stories started adding up into civilization level ideas that we've always cared about. Really big themes, life and death, war and peace, trade, money, power. And, and, and we can understand all of those ideas better by looking at the clocks that people have made for thousands of years. Uh, it's fascinating the way that the you know the history of of time is actually it is the history of the world, isn't it? The way the way I think that so. um, yeah, yeah. Um, and this the maritime aspect of it is just one one aspect of the history of time, the history of clocks. We should make that very clear. And you know, you and I could probably chat very happily about all sorts of different things. Um, probably starting again in Bern. Um, but let's stick to the maritime world. So, why is the study of time at sea important? Um, the the big story. The headline story is longitude. It's about navigation at sea. And the headline story is that when the maritime imperial nations started building their empires, so we're talking about Portugal, Spain, Netherlands, France, and then Britain coming a little bit later to the party, um, they were traveling by ship in greater numbers, farther, faster. And knowing where you are when you're out of sight of land, of course, is, is crucial in that endeavour. And navigation, therefore, was pretty much the biggest challenge for any empire that wanted to build and grow. Um, and from, I mean, if those empires started to be built in the 15th, 16th centuries, at the same time, a crucial problem uh, grew up, which seemed insoluble. The solution to the problem was well known, but nobody could make the technology to solve it. The problem was longitude, which is east-west navigation. Latitude, north-south position, fairly easy to find from the position of the sun or certain stars, using fairly simple angle measuring devices, cross staffs, back staffs, whatever. And also, I mean, the, the navigation technologies and practices were really sophisticated right from the start, 15th, 16th centuries. You know, ideas about dead reckoning, about kind of plotting your way through your voyage. Um, you can work out your speed from a log line and log glasses. You can work out your direction 
using the magnetism of the earth, the flora and fauna, the saltiness of the sea, the direction and strength of the wind, um, the depth of the sea near coastlines, all of that could be built up into a picture of where you are if you're really knowledgeable and deft and the navigators of all the nations not just the maritime empires but all the seafaring nations through history have been incredibly deft at navigation but if you're going to kind of scale that up as the maritime empires wanted to do then solving longitude east or west position uh, was critical the solution to it was known in the 16th century there were two solutions it was well known in the 16th century one was to do with carrying a clock on board your ship the other was to do with using this, the skies above you as a giant celestial clock, both of which telling you the time that a fixed place on Earth, let's say the port that you've sailed from. And if you compare the time where you are now on the ocean, which you can find again from the sun or the stars with simple angle measuring devices, if you can compare that time with the time at a fixed point on Earth, the difference between the two times is exactly equivalent to the longitude distance between the two places. It's as simple as that. So either you carry a clock on board your ship, which keeps, let's say, Greenwich time, or you use the moon and the stars above you to tell you Greenwich time, problem solved. The problem was nobody could build a clock that could keep time accurately with the movement of the ship and the temperature changes and the salty air and the months-long or years-long voyages the lubrication would dry up, which was one problem. And for the lunar distance method, this celestial method, nobody had mapped the stars accurately enough and nobody had built an angle measuring device accurate enough for that to work. So it wasn't until the 18th century, after a series, after a lot of money had been pumped into this project to solve uh, those two challenges, that the technology and the lunar and solar and stellar mapping had happened, that by the 1760s, two solutions were on the table, the chronometer method and the lunar distance. And from then on, the nations, the maritime nations started to expand hugely. I mean, you've been a curator of timekeeping at Greenwich, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell me uh, what it's like being up close to Harrison's chronometer, the, the, um, you know, the, the thing that, that solved the problem? John Harrison, this great name in the longitude problem, was the clockmaker who spent his adult life from the 1730s until 1759 making a series of sea clocks, the last of four of which was actually a modified watch, became known as H4, Harrison's fourth timekeeper, which was the forerunner of every modern marine chronometer and he'd solved the longitude problem and he got loads of money for it well those four sea clocks are on shore at the royal observatory in greenwich where i used to work and the first three which are big clocks uh, are kept running they need to be wound up every day so there's a rotor for winding up those three clocks which are three of the most significant clocks that have ever been built in human history when you think about what they enabled and i had the I mean, I had the honour of being on that roster three days a week. Like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, first thing I would do at work is go and wind the Harrison clocks. Can you imagine getting the keys to those cabinets and being able for years to go in and and hear them tick and and watch their kind of their ballet, you know, 
it was just extraordinary. You know, every time I opened those cases, I don't think it's fanciful to say that I was taken elsewhere. You know, I was transported to places where marine chronometers enabled ships to. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Travel. It's, it's worth saying here that something like the, um, I know, the remains of Babbage's Difference Engine, uh, which is in a museum in Cambridge? Well, well, there, well there's, there's, there's lots of remains lots, lots of Babbage, of but, of them. But, uh, but also the Science Museum, which I also used to work at. I also used to have the keys to that I'm just, I'm just well. my, my point is, is that they, they sit there inanimately, usually behind glass, so you don't have to interact with them every day. And actually, for years and years and years, they will go deliberately without anyone touching them, unless they're kind of cleaning them or something, not making them work. Um, but here, you know, we still have this responsibility to keep this bit of history going. I mean, clocks are kind of, well, they're not quite unique, but they're pretty unique like that. They were designed to run 24-7, 365. That, you know, unlike a, a motor car, it's only ever designed to run for a journey and then stop. A clock, can you think of any other machines in history which were designed to run continuously for year after year after year? So, so for those Harrison clocks, I mean, the fourth one, which is a watch, it's still in work and order, although it's not wound up because it would wear out much more than the, the bigger clocks. But when you're looking at those clocks working, you're seeing them working as they did um, in the 18th century, you know, before everything that happened in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries. And that's what that's what gets me. I'm looking at these clocks which were made before all of this was made possible. Yeah, extraordinary, isn't it? How did Charles II fit into into this quest for longitude and Greenwich while we're talking about Greenwich? 
Well, long, long before John Harrison started making clocks to solve the problem, people were trying to solve the astronomical um, method, the lunar distance method, which is about measuring the angle between the moon and certain stars uh, at night, measuring really accurately, comparing against tables of figures to tell you the time um, at that instant, at that location. So really, the, the challenge in the 17th century, before John Harrison started, uh, was an astronomical one. What Charles II decided to do was to, to found the Royal Observatory in Greenwich itself. So in 1675, the Royal Observatory was, was founded in Greenwich, um, specifically to map the stars, to solve the longitude problem, to enable his uh, nascent empire um, to continue to grow. I mean, he was bankrolling... Um, largely bankrolling a gold and slave trading empire uh, in Africa. Um, and astronomical observatories had been founded around the world for centuries before, but most recently in Paris, um, just a few years earlier, um, by Louis XIV. Um, and the great rivalry uh, and competition between the European nations. Well, if Paris has got one, then then Britain needs to have one. And what we all, if we can, go and visit at the top of the hill in Greenwich is the result of that. A modest observatory compared with the Paris observatory, um, modest in a, a, a southeast corner of London. Uh, but again, you think about the power that that enables uh, to be wielded. Um, it's it's a great survival. Yeah, it's extraordinary stuff, isn't it? Um, and again, while we're talking about Greenwich, let's talk about um, the the co- coastal time signals because there's a rather there's a cracker on Greenwich, isn't there? Tell us about that one. Well, if you visit Greenwich, um, you can't fail to notice on the top of one of the turrets of the 17th century building is a 19th century edition, which is the time ball. It's a huge, now painted red, uh, now aluminium ball on a mast and at five minutes to one every afternoon to this day the ball rises halfway up the mast saying get ready something's about to happen at two minutes to one it rises all the way to the top of the mast and then at the instant of one o'clock to a split second as measured by the astronomers at Greenwich with their great telescopes and the stars above the ball drops and if you were in a ship in the Thames Uh, down below and you could see this ball through a telescope from the deck of the ship or if you were in the docks like the East India dock which is still there you can still go and take a pair of binoculars to the East India dock and see the time ball at Greenwich at one o'clock in the afternoon you've got a very accurate time signal to set the chronometers on board your ship which enable you to navigate safely for the rest of your voyage. So the chronometers were one half of a, of a problem, the shipboard timekeeper. Well, you need to know what time to set on those chronometers. So the idea of river and coastal time signals, which gave the accurate time to those ships, started to be very significant. Now, that time ball was installed in 1833 at Greenwich. By the turn of the 20th century, there was a survey done of how many coastal time signals there were around the world for all the maritime empires. And the result was 200. 200 time balls, some of them were time discs, time guns, or possibly flags. The only continent on Earth not encircled by these big, expensive, accurate coastal time signals 
was Antarctica. <laughs> each, but each one of those signals, this wasn't a trivial um, construction. You needed to secure land. You needed to build something physically complex. You needed to find the time accurately and somehow transmit the time to that signal. You needed the labor, the, the specialist scientific skill in all of these locations, in some of the most difficult places uh, physically uh, on Earth. And yet, it was important that the nations did that because the, the rewards that came from having invested in this massive temporal technology, this network, this infrastructure of time around the world was worth it for what it enabled, which was maritime trade. Now, most of them have gone. I mean, most of because they were, you know, they took a lot of maintenance, uh, they've disappeared since. The Greenwich one is still there, and you can still find them around the world. There's one in Cape Town. There are, you know, there are time balls still around the coasts. In many cases, we've forgotten what they were doing in the 19th and 20th century. I mean, they were superseded by radio, by wireless time signals in the first quarter of the first half of the 20th century and then this sort of we forgot what they were but they're they're the foot soldiers of empire um, and they kind of they, they give us a geography of of the former empires if we care to plot them on a map yeah so which other countries were building these well, it was all the maritime nations. So at the turn of the 20th century, whether it was, uh, you know, the old nations of Portugal, Spain, France, uh, or the newer nations that may have maybe had, you know, one or two possessions overseas. Um, America um, built many coastal time signals around its own coast. Um, also, you know, in, in, in China and in Asia, um, around the world. And there's kind of a lag as well, because it took a long time to build one of these things. You know, you, you're looking at um, a kind of snapshot of the empire, uh, maybe 10 years or 20 years earlier. Um, but yeah, many of them still there, if you know where to look. Yeah. How does the rugby radio station fit into all of this? Well, if anybody's got a radio-controlled clock on the kitchen wall... Um, in the UK, it gets a radio signal to set it right. And that radio signal comes from Cumbria, a place called Anthorn. Um, but it's only been coming from Cumbria since 2007. Before then, it came from rugby in Warwickshire, in the Warwickshire countryside. Um, and if you used to travel on the West Coast Railway, passing rugby... Most of these have gone now, but there was a time before 2007, you would see this forest of vast masts, wireless masts holding up uh, antennas, uh, broadcasting wireless messages around the world. Rugby radio station was built in 1926 specifically to communicate with Britain's naval ships around the world directly without wires, without them having to put into ports to pick up messages or time signals. Very, very long wave radio was its forte, so those radio signals kind of hug the curvature of the earth, enabling those signals to get all the way around the world. And, you know, uh, it, in the case of the British Empire, it needed to get around to um, the other side of the world. Part of the imperial wireless chain, a chain of these stations around the world. And they started in 1927 to broadcast a time signal which is still going strong today from Cumbria. But what really interests me about Rugby Radio Station 
I mean, technically it's fascinating, but it was what it was doing for the British people in the 1920s. It was a propaganda exercise as much as it was a technical solution to a set of problems. It was run by the post office, um, which ran pretty much all state communications at the time. And the post office were really, really good at propaganda. Um, so this was a very visible radio station, not just if you went past it, but you couldn't miss it. If you went to the cinema and you saw the Pathé newsreel footage before the feature, um, you would probably see rugby radio station being talked about. I found one of these films from 1932 where Pathé took a film crew to rugby radio station and there's a scene where there's these Morse code um, buzzers chattering away, um, spooling out a message on printed paper tape. And here's the voiceover. Whilst we are here, this transmitter is sending out news to liners in all the seven seas. No place is inaccessible to GBR, which was the call sign for rugby radio. For those who can't read Morse, said the voiceover, this machine is signalling that the post office rugby station is the most powerful in the world. Hmm. What that meant was Britain is the most powerful in the world. The British Empire is the most powerful in the world. This was at a time when the empire was starting to falter a little bit. It had reached its height, but it needed to be reborn in the minds of the British people continually the idea that British, that Britain is, is at the heart of the world, that rugby radio station, therefore, is at the heart of the world, and that everything in the world is connected back to Britain. Fascinating stuff. Uh, so rugby is um, beaming the time around the world. How did the people at rugby know what the time was? <laughs> um, so, it, so it started broadcasting in 1927. Yeah. You needed a really sophisticated understanding of its coding system to decode what the time was. It was Morse code. You needed a high-power receiver. You needed a decoding chart. This was for the professionals, uh, for the navigating officers uh, on ships or for the scientists. What about us? Well, how did we get the time? Um, the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, as it was founded, the corporation as it became, had started broadcasting time to us civilians uh, three years earlier. We know it well in the UK and around the world on the World Service. It's the six pips time signal started in 1924, which was a direct connection between, again, Greenwich, yep. the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, which originated the time and sent... Um, these six impulses of electricity on a rented telephone wire to the BBC's headquarters in central London. At the time, they were absolutely on the river, just along the river from the Houses of Parliament with Big Ben. There we go. And the BBC would turn those impulses into audio tones or pips, which were then broadcast, giving you the time to a fifth of a second if you had a, a radio receiver and from from that moment i mean accurate time greenwich time greenwich observatory time was being beamed into the lives of of all people in the uk and then on the world service around the world the idea that precise time is a public good which had been growing in the Victorian period, was absolutely present in the 1920s and 30s. Maybe we've forgotten it now. And the pips 
on BBC Digital Radio are several seconds late. So remember your analogue radio sets if you want to get accurate time. And of course, we've got all kinds of other ways of getting the time accurately now, mostly from GPS satellites circling the Earth. But in the 1920s and 30s, when the six pips started, when rugby radio started, this was absolutely in our faces and we cared deeply about the idea of precision time because it stood for progress and modernity. Amazing. So just to finish, is it fair to say that our understanding of clocks and the sea is not necessarily about what they do, but it's what about what they mean? I think our understanding of all clocks, all timekeepers that have ever been made, of course I'm interested in the technical story of, of how they work and how they were made and some remarkable stories of, of clock making through history. But all the stories come down to what they mean about why they were made, who caused these timekeepers to be made, whether maritime timekeepers or in civil life. It's what they mean. It's, it's why we should care about them um, for, for these civilization-level themes and ideas about, the, about control, about power, about money, you know, big, big ideas. And you look at any clock and you can see behind the face at what it stood for, what it meant, and you get a history of, of civilization. Amazing stuff, David. I've really enjoyed that chat. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, Sam. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, if you're interested in these themes, please keep your ears peeled and close to the ground, I think I've got that right, for a forthcoming episode from the fabulous historian Seb Falk, who tells us about the incredible achievements of the medieval navigators, a topic which also has a great deal to do with time. Please check out our YouTube channel for videos which will blow your mind about the maritime world, my current favourite being an animation of the engineer's technical ship plan of HMS Warrior, a ship that changed pretty much everything about the expectations of sea power. We show what all those many intricate lines in a technical ship plan actually mean. Please remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk and please, please join up. It really makes a difference to the society and to the society's work. It's also a wonderful way of meeting people and to learn about the maritime past from the world's very best maritime historians. The History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation you can find at hec.lrfoundation.com foundation.org.uk and they are doing something fabulous at the moment it's called maritime innovation in miniature filming the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment and the results are really quite extraordinary <laughs>